0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States, episode 1.14, Who are the Pilgrims? Okay, so after spending the last seven episodes in Virginia, it is time that we finally move on. But before we all just jump in, I want to give you a quick update on where we are heading for what will make up the rest of this first season. We are about to embark on a series of episodes that is going to focus primarily on the New England colonies and as well as some of the middle colonies. The majority of our time is going to be spent with the Puritan colonies that form in New England. These are going to grow to include Puritan, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Plymouth. We are also going to take a peek in and talk about some of the early Dutch colonies and their foundations down in what would become New York. So it shouldn't come as a shock that it's going to take us a while to get through all of that. Now, there are a couple colonies that we are going to come to later, like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Carolina, and New Jersey. Those will largely be safe for next season. Once I am done covering New England, we are going to have an episode on the slave trade, and then a final episode that is going to grab at all of these loose strings and tie them together nicely. But before you start feeling too sad that this season is coming to an end, just be aware that where we sit right now, I think we're probably right about halfway through our first season. So hopefully that gives you some sense of where we're going to be heading over the coming months. For today, we are going to begin introducing the Puritans as we begin our discussion on the founding of New England. In some ways, I feel that I can summarize New England simply by saying that you need to take everything we learn in Jamestown and apply exactly the opposite. The story of New England in so many ways stands in stark contrast to what we have seen in Virginia. New England, specifically in regards to Massachusetts, is going to become a hotbed for liberalism almost immediately from its inception. For us here in the United States, when we discuss our founding, it is Massachusetts and the pilgrims that we turn to, not the Jamestown settlement typically. So many of the things that those of us in the United States hold as our core principles are born out of these Puritan settlements. We are going to see, early on, the introduction of Republican principles and representative government flourish in the newly formed colonies. In fact, by the time we get to the events leading up to the American Revolution, I doubt anybody is going to be surprised that the events are largely driven by people in and around Boston. In some ways, it feels almost like from the founding that there are revolutionary ideas that are percolating not far below the surface. And it is going to take almost 150 years for those feelings to gain traction and explode outward in shows of defiance against the crown. That, however, is a story for another day. Today, we are going to start at the beginning and look at who are the Puritans. What are they looking for when they make the decision to migrate across the Atlantic and settle in New England? What were they trying to get away from, and what did they actually find? So, the first question we need to ask is, what's a Puritan? Way back in episode 1.4, we briefly addressed what a Puritan is. However, I'd like to go a little bit more in depth on the subject as their beliefs are going to be so core to the colony. So Cliff Notes version here of what we talked about back a couple episodes ago. Henry VIII wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. The Pope, not wanting to risk the wrath of Charles V, who had sacked Rome shortly before, decides to take the diplomatic option. He stalls. Henry VIII gets annoyed at this tactic and decides that he's going to go ahead and break from the church. And that's just what he does. He annuls the marriage to Catherine, and he marries Anne Boleyn, and they live happily ever after. At least until 1536, when Henry beheads her, but that's a different story that I'm not diving into right now. Anyway, after breaking with the church, Henry VIII now has himself in a position where he's not only the head of government, but he is also the head of the church. Born out of this, and the greater reformation moving through Europe, is a group that seeks to bring the church back to a much more pure place. Puritanism first appears in England during the reign of Elizabeth I. Following the Protestant purges of Mary, Elizabeth seeks to make everybody happy. To accomplish this, she uses the religious settlement of 1559. The hope was that she could steer the nation back towards the Church of England, while giving a degree of toleration for Catholics. As Protestants who had fled England during the time of Mary begin to return, a group of discontented Protestants' forms. As we've been discussing, this group did not feel as though the changes to the church had gone far enough. They wanted a church completely stripped of the vestiges of Catholicism and returned to a more pure form of Christianity. Originally meant as an epithet, this group would become known as the Puritans. They view the grandeur of the church with disdain. They believed that worldly goods were sinful in nature. They stood against the use of any kind of idols during worship, including the cross itself. Just to put this in perspective, things such as wedding rings in their mind were an affront to God. If there was not a biblical basis for something, then the Puritans were not going to do it. Even things as simple as making the gesture of the cross was done away with, as this is not something that is mentioned specifically in the Bible. With that in mind, just imagine what their feelings must have been towards something like St. Peter's Basilica. What the Purians were instead looking for was something very stripped down, a much more simple form of Christianity. They didn't need some grand basilica to worship in. A small Spartan building would do the job just fine. Among the biggest differences, and the one that is going to have the most profound effect is that the Puritans believed that the saints had already been predetermined by God. As everything had already been predetermined, there was effectively nothing that could be done to ensure oneself's salvation. Therefore, the thought is that while a person could not personally determine or influence their own salvation, it would still assume that those who were going to be saved would live godly lives. What this does is basically starts an arms race between the people. Everybody was trying to live the most godly life possible and was constantly measuring themselves against their neighbors to see who could be the most pious out of the group. Now, a few things that I want to touch on before we go any further. First, the Puritan movement is much larger than the group we see coming to North America in the 1620s. The vast majority of Puritans continue to live in Europe long after the Mayflower leaves, so do not think that this is a mass migration of all the Puritans. In fact, One of the big things that needs to be made clear is that there is not a single unified movement known as the Puritan movement. Remember that the Puritans, as they will become known, were opposed to any kind of hierarchical structure. What instead emerges is several smaller, localized groups of Puritans rather than any kind of united Puritan front. So that should give you an idea of who these groups were. Now I would like to specifically turn to the group of Puritans that are going to, eventually, be heading to North America. Well, there would never be a unified Puritan church, groups would emerge within the community that are going to follow some different paths. The first group wanted to fix the church from within. The second group, known as the Separatists and also occasionally appearing as the Brownists, sought more extreme remedies. This brings us to what is going to become important a few episodes down the road. Oftentimes, when referring specifically to the Puritans in the future United States, we are going to be talking about the group that settled Massachusetts in the 1630s. And this is not the same group that is going to end up founding Plymouth on the Mayflower. The biggest difference between the two groups is that the more moderate Puritans wanted to see the church return to a more pure place. Rejecting what they viewed as idols and impure things was their goal. The Separatists took things to the next level. They didn't just think that the church needed purification, they thought that the entire structure needed to be demolished. Separatists did not believe in the idea of any kind of a church hierarchy. In their view, all you need was a single person to lead an individual church service. Any expansion beyond that was completely unnecessary and led directly to the excesses and the rampant corruption inside of the Catholic Church. So, to make sure we are clear on terminology, the group landing in Plymouth are going to be part of that separatist movement. The group that is going to end up settling in Massachusetts Bay are going to be the more moderate Puritans who wanted to reform things from within. The Reformation in England was fundamentally different than what had happened with Luther in Central Europe. On the continent, Luther had led the Reformation as part of a theological dispute, whereas in England, Henry VIII broke with the church because of a pragmatic reason. Beyond the need for a divorce and a non-compliant church, Henry had no real interest or complaint with the overall structure of the church. When Henry decides that papal authority is no longer something he's going to concern himself with, he doesn't blow the church up, he simply recreates it. Instead of a pope standing at the head of it, the English monarch is going to take that role. The political and social ramifications from this are profound. Henry and future monarchs would stand as the head of both the church and the state. For the separatist Puritans who rejected this hierarchy, this poses a very serious problem for the monarchy. This isn't simply a question of blasphemy. It is a question of treason. With the church and the state married to each other, disobeying one has the practical effect as being a shot at the other. Unsurprisingly, this was a source of serious tension that kept the Puritans in a permanently uneasy spot. By rejecting the hierarchy of the Anglican church, the feeling was that they were rejecting the monarchy itself. Such subversive groups are a dangerous thing and the English monarchs realized this. While the group seeking to purify the church was an unwelcome annoyance, they did impose the fundamental threat that the separatists did. For the crown, the separatists were not looking for reform, they were openly questioning the sovereignty of the monarch. The group that we are going to be following, who would later become the pilgrims, originally formed in the small hamlet of Scrooby, located in central England some 30 miles from Sheffield. Belonging to the separatist group, the Puritans and Scrooby refused to attend the local Anglican church and rejected that hierarchy. Among the small group, two leaders quickly emerged, William Brewster and the young but enthusiastic William Bradford. William Bradford was born in Osterfield, a small town in northern England. Bradford was born into a fairly well-off family who owned quite a bit of land. Much of his young life, however, was defined by the losses he suffered. By the time he had turned 12, both of his parents and his sister had died, and he was being raised by his grandparents and his uncle. Bradford was an intelligent child who, while suffering from a prolonged illness at the age of 12, began reading the Bible to deal with his loneliness. In addition to the Bible, Bradford immersed himself in the theological philosophy of the day and took an interest in how religion in England functioned. This increasingly led Bradford to be troubled with how Christianity was locally practiced. It was just five miles away in Scrooby that the now 17-year-old Bradford would find what he was looking for, a group who met in secret and worshipped according to their beliefs. Bradford is going to remain a fixture in our story basically for the rest of this season. As he was such a prolific writer, much of what we know about both this group and the early years in New England are going to come directly from his writings. The group that formed in Scrooby became increasingly disenchanted with the conditions of the Church of England and had decided that it was no longer the true church. This means that the group had moved away from that group of Puritans looking for reform from within, and had moved solidly into the category of being separatists. In 1607, the group decided that it was time to leave England and relocate to Holland. Things had become increasingly dangerous in Scrooby when, at some point in 1607, the Bishop of York had learned about the secret congregation. Bradford would write that during those years in Scrooby, the group was under constant surveillance and persecution. This situation became so dangerous that the decision was made that the group could no longer survive in England and be able to worship according to their beliefs. With ongoing persecution, the group decided that they needed to leave their home and travel across the Channel to the more religiously accepting Holland. Leaving England was no easy feat, as James I did not believe in giving permission for religious dissidents to leave the country. This meant that the attempt to flee was going to have to be in secret as well. The first attempt to do this is going to fail miserably. The man that the group hired to get them out of the country turned on them and handed them directly over to the authorities. On the second attempt, the local militia showed up and crashed the party. This time, a handful of the group from Scrooby did successfully make it to Holland However, now the group was split. It would take months before the remainder of the group would make it across the channel. Having left England for Holland in the hopes of the ability to freely practice their religion, the pilgrims found a mixed world. Beyond the obvious difficulties that come with being an immigrant, there was the additional question of how to actually use this newfound freedom. Arriving in Amsterdam in 1608, the group from Scrooby walked into a contentious religious environment. While Holland did afford them the freedom to worship as they deemed proper, they were hardly the only group of English separatists to have made their way across the Channel into Holland. Upon arrival in Holland, what the group found was that two other separatist groups that had come were embroiled in their own debates. The core cause of many of these debates and arguments came from the newfound freedom. Without the cautious restraint that they had exercised in England, the positions of some of the separatists began to drift to more radical places that would often cause discomfort for the less radical in the group. Not wanting to become involved in these ongoing arguments, the Scrooby separatists decided that they shouldn't remain in Amsterdam for long. Less than a year after arriving in Amsterdam, the separatists relocated south to Leiden, which is just north of The Hague. At this time, the group that had left Amsterdam had about 100 members, and it is here in Leiden that they are going to remain for the next 12 years. By and large, the time in Leiden was very successful for the group. While Bradford would write about the difficulties one would expect from being in a foreign land, you know, problems with language and fear of poverty, the group had found the religious freedom that they had wanted. Leiden during the early part of the 17th century was a melting pot of religion. The religious tolerance meant that much of the population was made up of people who had run into religious persecution in their home countries. For their part, the Dutch stayed out of their business and they were allowed to practice as they wished. It was well enlightened that William Bradford would become one of the leaders of the group. In 1611, he was able to buy a house, and just a year later, he would marry Dorothy May. Bradford was a popular figure in the community and was held in high regard. Well enlightened, the group would develop a very strong sense of community, while at the same time showing that they could handle adversity. During these years, the group learned how to work together in order to survive on foreign soil, something that's going to become very important later. The Pilgrims quickly settled into their new lives in Leiden. They bought homes and dove into their new lives. While in Leiden, the group remained close and managed to overcome the obstacles that came their way. The Puritans, in many ways, would use this time in Leiden as a trial run for what they're going to encounter when they come to New England. They worked through their problems and they thrived, and this core sense of community is going to become one of the defining traits of the Pilgrims as they make their way to New England. Leiden provided ample opportunity for the settlers from Scrooby. Leiden was something of a commercial hub at this time, so there was no shortage of work to go around. A couple of important points come out of this. First, it means that the members of the group were not strangers to hard work. In addition, it means that the settlers were able to live decent, middle-class lives. This is going to be important when they arrive in New England, as there is not going to be that dramatic divide in wealth that we see crop up in Virginia we are not going to see that mixture of rich and poor melded together. Rather, what emerges is a solidly middle-class group. The problem with all of this, however, is that the longer the pilgrims remained in Holland, the more and more the younger generation began to lose their English roots, something that was always disconcerting to the adults in the community. For a group that always remained much more turned inward on itself, this was a very serious concern. The idea that the younger generation would shed some of the very things that bound them so closely together would spell death to the group and their way of life. While the lives that they were living in Holland by all accounts were good, the pilgrim elders were becoming increasingly concerned about the greater cost to the colony and to the future of their movement. So for the pilgrims, the question becomes this. Where could they go to avoid the persecution that they have felt in England, but at the same time prevent their group from being corrupted or from being absorbed by the greater population. The answer to this question doesn't lie in Europe, but rather North America. Beginning in late 1617, the group began attempting to get a patent to explore and settle North America. By this point, it was clear to everybody involved that the Virginia Company was financially struggling. They are still trying to find some way to make Virginia profitable, and despite the fact that tobacco was now up and running, the colony continued to hemorrhage money. As a result of this, those who were wanting to make the trip across the Atlantic were not going to get the same fully funded journey that those who had come across in 1607 with the Virginia Company had received. Instead, something entirely different is going to evolve out of the situation. What we now see is a plan whereby somebody who is willing to start up a plantation would be given a chance, after five to seven years, to apply for a new patent granting them a permanent title to that land. Of course, this means having to survive for that first five to seven years. The English were anxious to expand their foothold in North America, so they were encouraging people to cross the Atlantic and start plantations. King James himself had some problems as well granting the new patent. The primary problem is that he was hesitant to grant a patent such as this to a group of separatists. The accepted response during this time towards these separatist groups was not to legitimize them in any way by granting them any kind of legal recognition. On the other hand, King James liked the plan he was hearing. The group was not going to be heading to North America to strike it rich, but rather they planned to exploit fishing, and James liked this idea. During our episodes on Jamestown, we had talked about the fact that the English had hoped to establish a manufacturing base in North America. And while this wasn't manufacturing, James did view it as an honest trade. And ultimately, a compromise was struck. While James refused to grant anything in writing, he did agree that he would not interfere with the journey, provided that the group conduct themselves peacefully. Around the same time, the group was about to find themselves in the middle of a minor international incident. One of the leaders of the group, William Brewster, had gotten himself a printing press and had started publishing material. Brewster's writings and publications were not exactly flattering to the English crown, and quickly Brewster found himself in some serious trouble. While the Dutch were happy to provide religious toleration, they were less anxious to get into the wrong side of a conflict with the English monarchy. Brewster had, at one point, been well-connected politically in England. As a younger man, Brewster had worked for William Davison, the Secretary of State under Queen Elizabeth. Davison would become a scapegoat for Queen Elizabeth in her decision to execute Mary, Queen of Scots. And while Davison would survive, he would go to prison and the political career of Brewster came to an abrupt end. Now, however, Brewster had run afoul of the crown with his publication. James I ordered his arrest, and with the Dutch not really interested in running afoul of the English, it forced Brewster to go into hiding. This is a very serious blow for the group. Brewster was in many ways their leader and was the elder statesman of the group. He was the one that others sought out when they had important decisions to make. Now, as the group had found themselves in the early stages of preparing for their biggest journey yet, their functional leader was hiding from the authorities who were looking to arrest him. With Brewster in hiding, the specifics of the negotiations fell to John Carver and Robert Cushman. By 1619, the group had the necessary patent ready. However, we're still struggling to get the necessary funding for the voyage. The group was also becoming increasingly aware of the dangers of the journey. William Bradford writes that a ship with a group, much like theirs, led by a Mr. Blackwell, had made the journey before them. Bradford writes that the ship was overpacked and then became seriously delayed. This resulted in the death of 130 of the 180 prospective colonists, along with Mr. Blackwell and the ship's captain. Bradford is reliant on a letter he had received from Robert Cushman here. However, regardless of the truth of the story, this shows that the Pilgrims were aware of the dangers that they would face and were, at a minimum, concerned about it. Now, as a quick aside, I did indulge and head down the rabbit trail trying to find something to confirm this story by Cushman, but I came up completely empty-handed. Other than a few mentions by Cushman of Lord Yardley, remember him, he's the governor of Virginia, I can't find anything to confirm this story one way or the other. So you listeners, if any of you have an answer or any evidence on this question, please reach out. Let me know. I would love to hear the answer on that. As final preparations for this trip, it does seem that the Pilgrims were approached by the Dutch about possibly sailing for them and having the Dutch fund the trip. The Pilgrims, concerned with their identity and not wanting Dutch influence to change the group, declined the offer. And this is worth noting because in 1624, the Dutch are going to land in Manhattan and establish their first colony. It is possible that the Dutch were already actively scouting Manhattan and, upon rejection of the Pilgrims, worked to steer them away from that site. The Pilgrims instead decided to pair up with Thomas Weston. Weston was a merchant who claimed to be representing a group of investors willing to pay for the journey. This group, called the Company of Merchant Adventurers of London, was actually a much older group dating back to the 15th century. The group, when it formed, was more of a guild than it was something resembling a modern company. For the Pilgrims, this was actually a perfect situation. The investors represented by Weston appeared to have peered in leanings and viewed the journey as a way to spread religion in North America. Of course, they also viewed it with the hopes that they would be able to turn a nice profit. The proposal to the Pilgrims was as follows. Weston would enter into a joint stock company with the Pilgrims. For an investment of £10 per person, the settlers would be able to invest in the company directly. Weston's company would cover the bulk of the money with the agreement that, once settled, the pilgrims would begin turning a profit through fishing and the fur trade. The pilgrims would then spend four days a week for the next seven years working for the company. Two additional days would belong to the pilgrims for their own work, and Sunday would be a day of worship. At the end of the seven years, profits would be divided and the pilgrims would own their own homes and plots outright. Now that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, as time went on, things began to go south. First, Weston failed to secure a needed monopoly and informed Robert Cushman that the deal needed to be adjusted. Those two days that they had for their own profits? Well, yeah, those were going to have to be done away with and become company days. Cushman agreed to the deal without ever consulting the pilgrims on the matter. Things became even more complicated when Weston became increasingly delayed in securing their passage. In his writings, Bradford includes letters from Cushman where he writes about how poor the relationship between the group and Weston had become, saying at one point that Weston had become so discontented with them that but for his promise he would have had nothing more to do with their business. Without a question, though, it appears very likely that the Pilgrims were as upset with Weston as Weston was sick of the Pilgrims. Of particular concern to the Pilgrims, Weston had expanded the original group. Very likely needing the additional funding, Weston was going to be taking more than their congregation now. And this goes directly against the plans of the Pilgrims who were looking to seclude themselves from the rest of society. While the Pilgrims knew that some of these people were from Leiden, many of them were completely unknown commodities. Despite this, however, the Pilgrims forged ahead and purchased themselves a 60-ton ship named the Speedwell. The Speedwell was retrofitted with two large masts and in July of 1620 sailed from Holland to Southampton. While the Pilgrims made their way to Southampton, Weston managed to secure a ship for the journey across the Atlantic. Under the command of Christopher Jones, the Mayflower had made numerous crossings across the Channel, carrying everything from wine to wool and hats. Now in Southampton, the entire group that was going to head across the Atlantic would come together. Many of the people going were from that Lighting congregation, and right about this time making his return to the group was William Brewster, who had spent the past year in hiding. It is also here that the group would meet the large number of strangers who Weston had added to come along on the voyage. The strangers were literally the name given to anybody who was not one of the Puritans. With the Speedwell and Mayflower ready to sail, they left Southampton. However, almost immediately after leaving, it became clear that in its current condition, the Speedwell wasn't going to make it. The problem with the Speedwell is that it was leaking. It was leaking a lot. It was therefore decided to head to port in Dartmouth for repairs. By this point, we are in the middle of August, and frankly, everything is going poorly. While in Dartmouth, a large number of pilgrims decided to simply cut their losses and abandon the journey altogether. While some of those on the Speedwell, including Cushman, did in fact abandon the mission, those aboard the Mayflower had much less success. The Mayflower's captain, Christopher Jones, didn't agree with people bailing out on the mission not this early on. To combat this, he simply refused to allow people to get off the boat. It really shouldn't come with much surprise in that case that Jones really did not endear himself to the colonists, and in fact, would lead to a pretty intense hatred for their captain. Meanwhile, aboard the Speedwell, the cause of the leaky hull quickly became obvious. During the repairs, it was discovered that the mass the ship had been retrofitted with were too large. The added stress on the hull from the oversized mass was causing leaks in the hull. There is some suggestion that this poor retrofit was done intentionally by the Dutch, who were doing what they could to stall the Pilgrims. After all, the Dutch had their eyes on Manhattan. Finally, after months of delays and with several members of the Speedwell now having bailed out on the mission, including Robert Cushman, the ships finally set sail towards North America. Months later than expected and with supplies already lower than desired, both the Mayflower and the Speedwell set sail. From this point on, it was smooth sailing across the Atlantic to Plymouth. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Despite the work being done on the speedwell, there was basically no chance that this ship was going to make it across the Atlantic. A few hundred miles out of port, they had to once again turn back because the speedwell was taking on water. At this point, the decision was made just to abandon the ship entirely. Eleven of the people from the speedwell decided to board the Mayflower. The rest of the group decided to return home, thus ending their journey. Finally, On September 6, 1620, the Mayflower and its now combined group of 102 people set out. With that, we are going to pause the story for this week and let the Pilgrims hang out on their boat until next time. And spoiler alert, things aren't going to get a whole lot better. As we are going to see in the coming weeks, the Pilgrims are going to stand in stark contrast to the Virginia settlers. This is a group that had spent the last several years as refugees already. They were used to hard work and they knew what it took to keep themselves alive. Beyond this, however, the group was leaving in the face of what they thought was actual persecution. And to be fair, the persecution was real enough that the Pilgrims felt it necessary to flee to Leiden in the first place. It was enough that eventually Thomas Brewster would have to go into hiding These experiences are going to prove to be hugely influential on the society that would form, and in so many ways is why New England is going to become a hotbed of dissent and tension as we move through the 17th and into the 18th century. However, this is where I'm going to leave us for this week. Next time, we are going to finish up the journey across the Atlantic before we begin settling in on those early years in New England. Specifically, we are going to spend much of the next episode looking at the Mayflower Compact, and the systems that were put into place. As always, I appreciate you listening, and I will see you back here in two weeks' time to talk about the Mayflower Compact.